Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. It's just one of those days where you just look at the mountain of projects you have and think, <laughs> I've got room for one more. Why not? Snow, or winter is coming, Jon Snow. Yeah. Well, in this case, winter is probably better for me because all the outside projects have to stop. Yeah, yeah, they'll cut down. But let me ask you something. When you get to a point where you'll look out your back door and go, well, there's nothing you can do, Steve, so just back off and work on something indoors. Or will you look back and be like, spring can't get here soon enough, man. Like, seriously, I'm just... Hard to say, hard to say. The The part of the backyard that I'm working on right now is halfway down the ravine. And so I can't see it from my window. So <laughs> I have, I can't see any of the progress or any of the non-progress that I'm making from inside the house. You just have to pretend to yourself that you've gotten rid of all of the potential problems. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's take a call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. But your calls go to the front of the line. Good evening. You are on Ask Noah. Good evening, Noah and Steve. My name is Jeff from Cincinnati. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Hey. So I am a little stumped, and I'm kind of hoping you guys can maybe steer me in the right direction. I have a Linksys AC1900 um, wireless router that I use for the home network. And we got it from Best Buy. And um, right after I installed it, it was working great. No issues. And then all of a sudden, I, no I started to notice my Raspberry Pi Zeros and some of the, even the hardwired Raspberry Pis just start dropping off the network. I run Uptime Kuma, which is an open source version of uh, Uptime Robot, to kind of ping the IP addresses to let me know if they're there or not. And I started noticing them just dropping off. I didn't think anything of it. I thought, okay, maybe it's power supplies or something with the, with the Pis. Played around with that just kind of let it go. Well, a couple of months later, my wife said, hey, my iPad is dropping off um, and I'm starting to have issues with occasionally with my laptop dropping off. And she has a MacBook Air as, as well as I do, in addition to a bunch of other computers. I thought, okay. So I tried fiddling with the router a little bit. Um, couldn't find any specific issues. Um, and then finally just did a complete factory reset of, of the router, reconfigured it for our network, everything popped back on, worked great for about a week, and then the same things started happening. Things just started dropping off. Really? Um, I've looked online to see if I can find what would be causing it. I thought, well, maybe it's just the 2G band, because it is a dual band router. I thought maybe it's the 2G band, but everything else is connecting via the 5G that's also having issues. Mm. I am... 100% stuck on this one. Okay, well, let's start with this. Do, when, when you say they drop off, do you still have a network address on the client side, and can you ping anything else on the network? Like, can you ping the gateway, for example? No. Um, okay. Well, well, I can't even get to them. They're, they're, all the pies are headless. Oh, so I okay. Even, I can't even ping, yeah. I can't even, so I can't even ping from, from the command line from there. Um, and when the the iPad drops off, and my iPad's done it too, um, there it doesn't even show connected to the network, as well as like our laptops when it happens, it's, they're not even showing connected. Atypical in the chat room, you can join us at geeklab.ninja. It runs 24-7-365. He says, this is a known problem with the Linksys uh, AC line, and people have even tried with OpenWRT and aren't able to get this problem to go away. So I guess we'll start there. Steve, have you ever heard of such a thing? I, my first thought was that we're having some sort of interference where um, I worked at a I worked at a government building for a time and uh, they have decent Wi-Fi and stuff like that, but they stuck it too close to the microwave. And so every time at lunch, 
when people started using the microwave frequently, the entire floor would lose uh, connectivity. So my first thought is always, what's going on in the environment? Do I have something that's cross-talking? Do I have um, trouble that way? But if you're having problems with hardwired devices, how are they, are they wired directly into the two or three ethernet ports that are on the back of this thing? Are they into a switch and then into the router itself? A couple of them are wired directly in. A couple of them are in a switch. Do you have all the devices drop at the same time, or is it random, like random devices will drop off? They don't all drop off together. It's a onesie-twosie thing. So, for example, I have one Raspberry Pi Zero that I use as like a meeting status light. It will just drop off, and then it'll come back up, and then maybe an hour or so later one of my pi threes will drop off and then it'll come back up and then an ipad will drop off kind of a thing but the ipad i do know that the ipads and the laptops don't drop near as frequently as the pies do um, so that's why i thought it was maybe there that's why i was thinking it's a signal problem like some sort of interference because so laptops particularly will have a stronger connection because they often run the antenna around the outside of the monitor. Mm. So you've got a bigger base to act as an antenna compared to other smaller devices. Um, are you in an apartment building or are you close to high density where there's a lot of other Wi-Fi going around? Yeah, we live in an apartment-style condo. Yeah, so there'd be a couple of things that I would look at. So inside of your... And it could be nothing like atypical could have be spot on. Like this could be a hardware problem, but this also uh, you could change the channel inside of the inside of the router itself. So most of the time, the routers will pick channels some some channel right in the middle of the range six, seven, eight, something like that, and all of them will pick that, which means that they're all kind of broadcasting and stepping on each other. What happens with Wi-Fi? I know we've mentioned this in the past is doesn't matter if it's your Wi-Fi or somebody else's. When there's Wi-Fi signal being f like flying around, essentially what happens is the most chatty person will have the access in the airwave. So the thing that's pinging like crazy is going to be the thing that's going to keep the connection. Something that's intermittent will sit and wait. It's, it'll try and broadcast, but it gets drowned out by the chattiest person in the room. Just like a big echo chamber with people, the person who's making the most noise is the one that's going to be heard the most often. And everybody else has to wait for that person to shut up. It's the same thing in Wi-Fi. So sometimes changing the channel will help you get away from some of that signal noise that you're seeing. I thought that too, and I actually did try that. I also even tried changing modes because I think this one does like A through N. And I even mm. changed to like, even just taking it down, like on the two gig band down to like B even. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and that didn't seem to fix it. Um, the router actually sits up on top of my desk, which is in our master bedroom. And then uh, my, my, my Mac and even a couple of the wi wireless Raspberry Pis actually sit like right near there even. So I was also thinking interference too, but being that close, I would think that that wouldn't be an issue. No, proximity doesn't actually impact very much the the ability for the Wi-Fi signals to be interfered with by things. I mean, it does, obviously, like compared to something that's 500 feet away. But at the same time, um, if, you, if you're getting heavy interference by something in the walls or or something like that. So when I was in an apartment, we had our access point in the ceiling outside of our bedroom. And, you know, in an apartment, your bedroom isn't like, you know, 10,000 square feet. We're talking about like it fit my bed and a couple of dressers. And that was the size of the room. And we still had problems with Wi-Fi because of all of the interference that was happening in the apartment complex. It was right there. I did all the tweaking that I could. And eventually I just said nuts to this. And I ran an Ethernet <laughs> cable on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> That's cheating, Steve. <laughs> it's, it's cheating, but it worked. Um, and I don't I was never able to figure out what was causing the problem. It was very similar to what you're talking about. Like the stuff in the bedroom would drop or not connect or, and it would be kind of random. So in my case, I know that the equipment was fine because when we moved, we're using it now. It's working just fine. But um, it between the interference and, and the constraints inside of an apartment building, we were just euchred. Doesn't really explain his wired connection problem though, does it? It doesn't. 
That one kind of surprises me. I was thinking that is more heat related, but mm. hard to say. So I, I would, I guess I would try that. I would look. If, so did you say you have gone and looked up a channel guide for five gigahertz or two point four and, and got all the channel things dialed in as best you could? Yes, I did actually. Yeah, I, that was one of the okay. first things I looked at too. Thinking, oh well, there's probably interference because I know I've got a couple of neighbors that run five G as well. Well, pretty much everybody in here that has spectrum runs 5g so i thought well maybe that was it and i started looking to see okay what channels are they running on where can i avoid uh you know clash and things like that what really stumped me overall on this thing was was we used to have an asus router unfortunately it wasn't fast enough mm. to handle the bandwidth coming from the spectrum modem so that's why we upgraded to this linksys because i've always had great luck with linksys products in the past mm -hmm. um and i just yeah that's why i went what that is a super strange problem. I, I think here would be my, my next troubleshooting steps. I think the first thing I would do is I might look at getting a more powerful access point and I might see if I can position it more either centrally in the apartment if you can. If you can't, just getting it, again, just getting a dedicated access point might give you a little bit more oomph and a little bit more reach. Um, past that, I... Do, you, do these things have a power rating in them? Like some, like the Unify have a, like a power rating in them to to boost the signal or like to kind of tweak it that way. Um, I wonder whether that also might help kind of drown out the noise around them. You know what I'm talking about, I Noah? I honestly don't even know. I, oh, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, so the, you know, the, the, there's a transmitter. Essentially, there's a transceiver inside of the access point, right? And so the, you you can choose how high you want to turn the, the power up. Now, in the Unify thing that Steve is talking about, typically what you want to do is you want to keep it as low as possible, and then you slowly move it up, and that allows the zero handoff from the client device to jump from one to the other when the RSSI, there becomes a big enough uh, difference there. Um, I suspect, so this goes back to, so I strongly suspect that you know, anytime you combine a router, a switch, an access point mm -hmm. all into one device, it's kind of like the spork syndrome, right? Is it a really good fork? Not really. Is it a good spoon? Not really. But it's a fork and a spoon all in one. Same thing, right? Does Linksys make a really good router? It's okay. Do they make a really good access point? It's all right. When you combine the access point, the switch, and the router, and then you have a demanding environment, that may be like the straw that broke the camel's back. So you can start to separate those things out. The thing that gives me pause and to say, hey, just go spend a hundred and some dollars on a UAPAC Pro, plug it in, is if you told me it was only happening with Wi-Fi, I would land there pretty quick. We start getting into these wired problems. It makes me think there's something else going on, although I don't know what that would be. I've seen weird stuff where you have, you know, a huge network with a ton of chatty devices and DHCP times out. That can't really be your issue because you live in an apartment. You don't have that many devices. I've seen issues where DHCP fails to work, but everything still talks on the network. Sounds like that's not your issue. I've never had it to where I can just, I just suddenly can't communicate with the network. And if I have, I've not seen that in both a wired and wireless connection. It's usually that's a layer one problem. Typically, there's something you can address in the, in, in, in the connection medium. That doesn't seem to fit you. you. You seem to have broken the mold. There's there's one case where I have experienced where um, I'm not saying this is the case, but I was at a client's place. And what was happening was when their Internet dropped, they could no longer ping uh, things across. Well, in their, in their case, across the VLAN mm. for for people that are uh, less network savvy, that shouldn't happen. Like mm. your access to the internet should not matter where on your network your your stuff was. Mm -hmm. We we never really tracked down where like where the problem was. We had to hand that off to somebody else. But the fact that somehow it was trying to make a connection out to like something trying to connect to the internet, whether it's DHCP or something, as soon as it lost that WAN connection, it was just like, now nah, I'm not forwarding <laughs> those packets. Like. Um, and that affected both the wireless and the, the wired clients. So obviously not your case, but, but there are weird corner cases that are, that exist out there. Absolutely. You know, atypical in the chat room suggests that a cheap SDR would help you figure out the wireless side of it. Anyway, you could at least see how much, uh, trap wireless traffic. You know, actually you don't even have to buy an SDR. Now that I think about it, you, there's an app called Wi-Fi analyzer. If you've got an Android phone. And you can download this thing and it will, the, what it does is it will let you open up and I can see 
a list of all of the access points that are in my area, as well as it will show me the uh, signal separation. So I can see, you know, you want 20 dB of signal separation to get a solid connection. And so if you start to see your neighbor's access point or other Wi-Fi networks that aren't yours and they have that higher than 20 dB of separation from your device, that's when you know you're going to start to have issues. Okay. Well, I do have a couple of RTL FDR dongles here. I'm a ham radio operator as well. And I like playing, I've been playing with, with those. So that actually might, I could actually probably use one of those to look at it too then. Okay. Sounds good. Well, do me a favor. If you could do that and give us a call back, I'd love to know what you wind up on. Okay. I appreciate it. I will do that. All right, thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Joining us in our interactive Mumble room, you can too. Go to mumble.mindrip1.com. Sleuth, welcome in, sir. Hey, Noah. Uh, I have a question today. Um, I've been looking at getting getting a used ThinkPad, and I was curious what all I should be looking at because I'm not really a ThinkPad guy, but I know that you and Steve both tend to use those machines and that you use a lot of them at Alta Speed. So I was curious what kind of machines should I look at or avoid or and uh, how will they run on Linux? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'll start with Steve. Do you have any thoughts on buying used computers? Do you have any general advice that you hand out? Mm, uh, I would make sure that you ask the relevant questions like, um, you know, is there anything wrong with the screen? Those are the types of things that I'd be interested in. You also might, with the ThinkPads, generally it's not true, but more and more there are th- some that don't have user replaceable parts, like the stuff yeah. is soldered in. And so, uh, like the X1, for example, you can you can find them that are not soldered in, but the vast majority you'll find will have soldered down parts. And yep. so you might, you want to make sure that you're okay with whatever it is, like, there's nothing wrong with the soldered parts if it has exactly what you want. Yeah. But then you also you're on the hook if it ever goes bad too, right? Yep, absolutely. And and that does happen. So let me start here, Sleuth. I would suggest that you start with looking at something like a T-Pad T T480. Then think that T480. Now here's how I arrive there. First thing I'm looking for in a used laptop is a popular model that's been used by a lot of companies. Reason that I look for that is a is a couple fold. One is I know that that has a track history of being treated fairly, not well, not so much the track history of being treated fairly well, but a track history of being used in a production environment without a whole lot of problems. The second thing is they're generally cheaper because there's a lot of them on the market. The third thing is I start to drill into the technical specifications of the computer because really when you say like what ones to avoid, I would say avoid the cheap ThinkPads, the E-Series, not because they are they won't run with Linux, but because they're inexpensive, cheap junk. Um, the T-Series, a very, very well-built series, was you know a $1,000 plus laptop when it was new, but you can go find the T-480. I'm looking at one on eBay right now for $279, okay? Doesn't come with a, 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 an AC adapter, and so I'd recommend you pick up like an Anchor type C65 watt um, uh, adapter that they call it the IQ. It's an extra $29. Um, but what you get with the T480, Thunderbolt, so you can do Thunderbolt docking, uh, 8000 series core i5, or you can get a core i7. It comes with 16 gigabytes RAM to Steve's point that is not soldered and you can just pop it open and put up to 32 gigs of RAM inside of the device. It has two storage slots. One is you can store a traditional 2.5 inch drive. The second is a M.2 NVMe. It's just the half uh, stick size. And so this is why we've kind of standardized on the, on the T480 at Alta Speed is because A, they're very inexpensive and we can get them uh, off of eBay fairly inexpensively. A lot of them are made with 1080p screens because they were used by Google and Amazon and all the places. Uh, and you can get them with up to 32 gigs of RAM. So if you need to emulate a bunch of VMs and stuff, doesn't preclude doing that. So I also are, like to make sure difference? that they have the the dock on the bottom. So I know that, mm. that Noah likes the Thunderbolt dock. I actually like the, the docks where you can just drop them in. So both of the ThinkPads I have, I just drop them on on the, on the dock and it's got yeah. the nice little button to eject them. Mm. I like that better. Uh, it's lazy. I don't want to think about cables. I just hit that button and pull the cable, the thing out. A hundred percent. And I've used both. I used to have the Dell E-Series dock reset it in. I agree with you hundred percent. It feels like you're just setting your laptop down and somehow it magically transforms into a desktop. The, the the pushback I would give you on that is you're locked into a very specific model. The nice thing about my Thunderbolt dock is I've gone through three laptops 
I haven't changed the dock. I put it in one time, and now I buy a new laptop, and the same cable plugs in and just takes over all the stuff. So have you guys gotten the fingerprint reader to work in Linux? No. I, or to be fair, we've not really <laughs> tried. Yeah, I think I th- we did once on an on a Dell XPS, um, but yeah, in general, have not had great luck with the uh, the fingerprint reader on Linux. Although I do think I saw something uh, the latest version of Ubuntu has it built in. I think natively to the user manager, so it might be easier now. And it's been a few years since I've tried. I mean, and then I was looking day, at the docking connector on the side. Is that a Type C port? It is. Like so, the the little piece of it yep so that when i can just plug a usb-c into it you can the the reason that it's a special thing is twofold so to to appease the people like steve you can set the laptop into a little holder thing and then when you push the quote-unquote lock button it slides a little connector into the side and connects to that type c port second thing it does and this is specific to thinkpads it will pass the mac address inside of the computer out through the dock so if you're using if you're in a corporate environment your mac address follows you around no matter where you're docking you don't get a separate nick that's really cool yeah um i had started to shop around a little bit and i was seeing uh t495s and t14s yep yeah t495 is going to be the amd one i think right yeah, this yeah. one is an AMD Ryzen. It's going to be a little more expensive, but that's an even better laptop than the T480. Yeah, have you used the difference, uh, the, the AMD Ryzen ones versus the Intel ones? No, but I can tell you almost definitively you're going to have a better experience on the AMD ones. Okay, so the, those don't have Thunderbolt, of course, is the trade-off. Uh, but they do have USB 4, right? Because I don't think you would give up. I don't know, is the answer. I don't know. Okay. I'd have to look at it. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. Again, 855-450-NOAA, or really the great way to do it is through Mumble because it gives you the opportunity to participate in the discussion, ask the questions, and you sound a little bit better. Hey, Steve, you ready to dig into a couple of feedback? Absolutely. All right, our first email comes in this evening from Brian and Jeremy. Brian writes in and says, Hi, guys. I had a similar problem accessing my bank in the UK. I use a mobile SIM in a modem router combo. I spoke to a tech person at the bank and he told me the reason I had login problems is because my IP kept changing during the login process. I solved the problem by using a VPN and so I'm confident that Steve's suggestion of using a VPN will prove to be a good one. I enjoy listening to the problem solving on your program. Thanks a lot, Brian. Jeremy writes in, again, this is all in response to the gentleman who was having trouble with his church logging into his bank after they changed ISPs over to a fiber connection. Jeremy writes in and he says, I don't think his issue is due to the change in ISP, but rather a change in the IP cookie pair they use to perform fraud detection. It may be that they have an algorithm that is ban happy. Take, for example, if you go to any other major bank and try to log in with your account from another town, it oftentimes will reauthor using two-factor in order to generate another cookie to ensure a secure access to your account. It sounds like their website is too aggressive and not sophisticated enough to do the aftermentioned cookie refresh. If you don't want to change banks after spending some time with them on the phone, you could just install a dial-home application like LogMeIn on that PC and work with BillPay. Best, Jeremy. So, I, you know, the nice thing I'm happy about this, Steve, is like our suggestions will get him to the right solution, right? Yep. I think it's nice to see that a couple other people were sniffing down the same path. Yeah. Our second email come uh, comes in from Travis. Travis writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve, I'll start by apologizing, apologizing for a bit of a long-winded email. I thought since I'd never written, I'd start by giving you thanks for uh, the great content. I'm a former IT manager, now disabled due to back injuries. I worked for a locally owned corporation managing IT infrastructure. The company I worked for several hundred employees, and I managed all of these users and assets by myself with only two other subordinate employees. I stumbled on a company called Global Cash, and they provide a small ad hoc products that they use all the way up to large rag mount control units. Their tech will work with IR serial, etc. At the time, we were looking at mid to high-end AV devices, either that had an RS-232 port or serial controller would accept serial commands from some variation from a network connection. This seems to require some research on the tech documentation referencing in my situation, but proved to be worth it. While I haven't done anything with these devices in a long time, I'm all but certain they can be implemented with Home Assistant, HomeBridge, and many other control options. 
This is a type of solution that's definitely a deep rabbit hole, and I'm sure that Global Cash isn't the only company with this sort of product line. They are just the company, as I discovered, can the state offer high-quality products. Here's a link to their site. At any rate, I know this was a long one. If you read through it all, thanks. In closing, thanks for all the contributions to the community. Much appreciated, Travis. So really appreciate this, Travis. I do absolutely think that between things like uh, BitFocus Companion and Home Assistant, we're eventually going to get more into controlling projectors and AV stuff. I think you're going to see more of that hitting the market. Uh, With that, we'll head to the Linux Newswire with JT standing by with the latest. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. At long last, Linux 6.0 has arrived. And looking forward to the future, the Rust infrastructure pull request has been submitted for Linux 6.1. Ahead of the merge window, longtime kernel developer Keys Cook, working with Rust for Linux lead developer Miguel Ojeda, has submitted the much-anticipated Rust introduction pull request intended for Linux 6.1. In security news, the recently discovered Linux-based ransomware stream known as CheerScript has been attributed to a Chinese cyber espionage group known for short-lived ransomware schemes. Also, researchers have revealed a never-before-seen piece of cross-platform malware that has infected a wide range of Linux and Windows devices, including small office routers, FreeBSD boxes, and large enterprise servers. Black Lotus Labs, the research arm of the security firm Lumen, is calling the malware chaos, a word that repeatedly appears in function names, certificates, and the file names that it uses. Black Lotus has observed interactions with these staging servers from both embedded Linux devices as well as enterprise servers, including one in Europe that was hosting an instance of GitLab. There are more than 100 unique samples in the wild. The notorious North Korean-associated hacking group Lazarus has been identified in a new campaign weaponizing legitimate open-source software. The software is being leveraged by the group to target employees and organizations across multiple industries and countries. Putty, Hitty, TypeVNC, Sumatra PDF Reader, and Mu PDF Subliminal Recording have all been targeted. However, in more positive security news, Parrot Security has released Parrot 5.1, as the latest stable release of their Debian-based ethical hacking and penetration testing distribution, bringing updated tools and new features. Parrot 5.1 also ships with the in-house built Anon Surf 4 anonymity tool that provides users with a solution to automatically route all system traffic through the anonymous Tor network. In other release news, Harbin OS has released version 2022.2, and Tuxedo OS, a German-based Linux distribution, has released version 1.0. UT 6.4 has been released, as well as Bash 5.2. And Seer, a GUI front-end to GDB for Linux, has released version 1.11. In hardware news, Star Labs has just unveiled the company's upcoming Starfighter Linux laptop, which will come with a generous set of hardware choices, the highlight being able to choose between AMD and Intel processors. And System76 Onyx Pro laptop was just updated with a 12th Gen Intel Core Alder Lake CPU an NVIDIA GeForce 3070 Ti or 3080 Ti, as well as a 4K OLED display. A while back, we introduced you to RISC-V and started talking about the advantages of this open ecosystem. Well, a few weeks ago, we covered the news that NASA has chosen RISC-V as their go-to standard for sending stuff up into space. So we invited Jack Kang, who joins us this hour. He's the Senior Vice President of Business Development, Customer Experience, and Corporate Marketing. Sir, welcome into the program. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us tonight. I want to get right into it. I want to start by getting a little bit of a lay of the land. Talk to me a little bit about what SI5 is and its relationship to Risk International. Yeah, so Sci5, we're the, the founder and leader of, of Risk V, and, and the reason for that is the company was founded by the inventors of Risk V. So Risk V was invented in, in 2010 at UC Berkeley. So Professor Krzysztof and two of his grad students, Jan Sub Lee and Andrew Waterman, they literally they were the ones who invented Risk V. And as they you know approached graduation in, in you know 2015, they did two things. Uh, one was they set up uh, Risk V International, which is the, the standards body that now manages the Risk V ISA spec. And then they started Sci5, a company here to commercialize RISC-V because they realized that there was some significant commercial opportunities and this demand for RISC-V-based products. So now, 
you know, sci-fi, we've been working on that since 2015. And what we really have is we have the largest portfolio of RISC-V products. Uh, we have the most number of, of customers, the most number of design wins, you know, 300 plus design wins, 100 plus different customers, eight of the top 10 uh, semiconductor companies uh, are our customers. And, you know, because of that, we we've, are able to invest the most money and continue to develop RISC-V. So uh, really, we view our role as to, you know, continue to develop better and better RISC-V products, work with our customers and help them, um, you know, adopt this, this new architecture. Can you talk a little bit about what the ecosystem of RISC-V looks like? Who owns the IP or how is that structured? Yeah, so that's a interesting question. You know, when you say IP of RISC-V, it really depends on what, what you mean. And I think there are some misconceptions here. So RISC-V properly is just the ISA. So the ISA is a specification of the instruction set. It's a very important specification. It's, it's the only, you know, it's the one that defines how hardware talks with software. But that specification is managed by RISC-V International, which is a nonprofit made up of the member companies. So people contribute to that. That standard gets published. It's open. Anybody can use it. Um, and then there's a lot of rules in terms of how people contribute those things so that the, you know, the patent rights and other stuff to any uh, contributions of the specification are laid out properly and that's managed by uh, RVI. Um, now, because the ISA itself is then open, you can have many different implementations of that. And of that, that's where, you know, a company like Sci-Fi comes in where we have commercial implementations of RISC-V. So our portfolio of products has different implementations covering microcontrollers to real-time cores to application cores, so, you know, high performance, you know, um, you know, going towards, you know, data center type computing type cores. Now, those implementations is Sci-Fi IP and our business model is to license that. Um, but the IP relative to, you know, what the RISC-V ISA is and that standard, that comes from RISC-V International and that's the open standard that creates all the new business opportunities uh, for RISC-V. Jack, Sci-5 is a leading U.S.-based semiconductor company. Can you talk a little bit about what Sci-5 do- Sci-5 does specifically with RISC-V? You write IP, is that right? Yeah, so we 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 uh, we write IP and we license it. So you know we license Verilog at the end of the day um, to our customers, who tend to be you know SLC makers, um, who then implement that into their design, right? So one of the things now that that kind of sets this question is. You know, for us, we are a U.S.-based IP company, so our designs are U.S. And you know, with recent, uh, you know, kind of a lot of onshoring type um, activities, we we provide the opportunity for a hundred percent, you know, onshore chain where you're using U.S. IP, U.S. chip companies. You know, they can use you know manufacturing in the U.S. and you can have kind of a hundred percent, you know, onshore type solution. Um, but that said, we have plenty of customers um, who use, you know, foundries all around the world. We have, you know, chip companies who use our products all around the world. But, you know, our products are not the chips themselves, but rather the IP that we license uh, to our customers so that they can put in their design. What is the advantage of RISC-V as opposed to x86 or ARM that a lot of people are going to be familiar with? They have it in their smartphone or their computer. Yeah. So there's there's fundamentally one really you know, important distinction that, that gives it a, a very long-term advantage. And then the other one is a technical side. So on the first one is RISC-V is a open standard that anybody can access. That means you're going to have choice in the market because there's different implementers. You can choose to implement it yourself. There's different ways to deploy it. So you have choice in the market. If you contrast that to x86, Really, there's only two companies that produce x86 stuff, Intel and AMD. And if you want x86, your only choice is you can buy a chip from Intel or you can buy a chip from AMD. So you really don't have much choice at all. Uh, ARM uh, is another one where it looks like there's a lot of choice because there's a lot of different SLC vendors all building ARM-based solutions. But ultimately, it all goes back to a single company. Um, Any changes, any new things that ISA, any new features... It all has to go back to a single entity called ARM, and, and they're a great company. They're very successful, but everything has to go back to that single company. Uh, if you compare that to RISC-V, RISC-V is open, so you can, use, you, can, you can choose to do what you want with it. So that choice basically also creates not just competition in the market, but a diversity of solutions. So you're going to have a much larger ecosystem because you have many more solutions. You know, it's what the whole world can produce. It's not just what one company can produce. Right. So I think that is the biggest difference between RISC-V and the other, you know, x86 and ARM. And then the other portion I mentioned earlier on the technical side is 
obviously it was a modern clean slate design you know whenever you design something new you get to look at look at the, the what's happened in the past and take the best uh and avoid other mistakes so there's just less baggage it's much more modern design so it actually lends itself to more efficient more power efficient more performant uh type of designs but that's very important but to me that's second order from the big point which is that choice and that freedom because it's open I love that. Can you talk a little bit about what your ideal use case is? Who are who are the kind of customers that look and say, you know what, this is the kind of product or situation where we have to go with Risk Five or where that's really going to be advantageous for us? Yeah. So I really do believe, you know, the the future of, of Risk Five is is inevitable. E- everything will just be Risk Five. Uh, a future of compute, all things will eventually go to Risk Five, and the reason for that is because you had that diversity of solutions because people can implement different things and it's designed from day one to support very small microcontrollers to real-time cores to application cores to HPC type systems because the diversity of implementations allows you to be in all these different markets. As you get in more markets, you get more software, you get a bigger software ecosystem, you get a bigger engineering ecosystem and it's very virtuous from one market to the other. So over time, and the time is quite rapid, it will be in everything. But I think more to maybe your question is like, what do you think is going to happen first? You know, how is it going to evolve? And I think that's where, um, you know, the ability to kind of have domain specific, the ability to customize, the ability to really target things really plays a big role. So a lot of these new fields or these new applications that are up and coming where, you know, it's not solved by general purpose computing, where they need to spend the time to do actual uh, development to target very specific solutions any market that has first-party software or new software being developed, when they get to choose at that point, then they will choose. They choose RISC-V, and that that's how they that's how that's, uh, uh, the market has evolved. You've mentioned the open design of RISC-V numerous times, and indeed, having an open marketplace where products can and services can compete creates for a better overall product. What I want to dig into the NASA deal. What value did NASA place in the open architecture of RISC-V? Yeah, no, that's a great um, question, and that's a that's a really important, uh, I think, design win for, you know, not just validating Risk Five, but kind of making it clear where it's going. Um, so one of the things you have to know about, you know, what NASA is building is they're building uh, really a, a platform. You look at the you know past space flight computers; these things need to last a very long time, you know, decades, and it's going to be used in many different applications. And so what they're looking at one of the key parts is what does the ecosystem look like? What ecosystem am I going to be able to have programmers, developers for that I know is going to be working on this, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now. And when you look at that, you know, risk five actually has the best and most stable ecosystem because it's growing because you know, what's happening, you know, because it's open, it can never be taken away. You know, risk five can't be bought by any one random company that like does something weird with it. It, it exists, it will always exist. So in that sense, the ecosystem is not just stable, but it's expanding and growing and kind of success guaranteed because of that. So when they look at that from an ecosystem perspective, it becomes a huge positive, which gets back to, I think, the next stage of the evolution that we are in with RISC-V, where, hey, it's not just cool because it's open, and it's not just cool that it has choice, it actually ends up, you know what? It's just better. The products are gonna be better, the ecosystem is better, right? So that's that's, you know, key point number one, key point number two, obviously the product had to perform, right? And I think this is one of the other things where you look like a NASA project, they're not trying to save a few dollars here and there, right? This is not a price-based decision. This is what's the best product with the best ecosystem. The X280 is a multi-core capable RISC-V processor. Jack, can you go into a little bit about why this processor specifically was chosen by NASA. What were they looking for in a processor and how did this particular product for Sci- from Sci-5 deliver on that? Yeah, so I need to be uh, just a little bit cautious here because I think in terms of uh, some of the technical uh, details going into this um, has not been you know opened up yet from, from NASA and a few other folks. Um, so I don't want to speak uh, on their behalf, but I can talk a little bit about uh, X280 and what that processor brings. So X280 uh, is uh, one of our uh, first uh, vector enabled processors. So one of the really important extensions for RISC-V is the vector extension. So the vector extension basically allows for very efficient, you know, 
data computation, um, you know, like moving lots of data and data workload type workload type application. Sorry. Um, so scientific applications, it's very good for image processing, image pre-processing, post-processing, AI inference, those type of applications that drive a lot of data. And the thing with vectors is it's a very nice um, compute interface. So we actually see uh, a lot of the architectures these days have moved away from SIMD and into vectors, right? ARM has vector extensions. Intel x86 has vector extensions. So this is RISC-V's vector extensions. And, you know, it's designed uh, from day one um, that vector extensions will be a big part of RISC-V. So the x280 uh, combines uh, basically uh, our scalar processing, which lets you run all your standard software like Linux um, and standard tools and everything that goes along with it. And it has it's built in with uh, RISC-V vectors, which lets you do a lot of the data processing and data computation. Uh, very efficiently. Um, and you can do it all with one single programming stream. So one RISC-V programming stream with one set of tools, as opposed to a CPU plus an accelerator or, or something, you know, more complex uh, like that. And then because it's standard software, standard RISC-V vector software will run on X280. So if you think about this, this is a great point. You know, we go back to RISC-V, what, what does this community like? They like to contribute. So you can contribute RISC-V vector code for various scientific workloads and other things that you can imagine might be useful. And that, that software code might very well run on the X280, which might very well be used by, you know, who knows what kind of applications. It gets my interest and attention when I see what NASA is doing. And, you know, it kind of made me dig into a little bit about what you guys are doing over at, at, at Sci-5. Um, but does any of this apply to the hobbyist. Can the hobbyist get into RISC-V? Undoubtedly, there's somebody listening there and going, that's really cool that Jack is saying that the future is going to be RISC-V. I would like to participate in that. Where could I get my hands on a, on a RISC-V chip? And how do I go about investigating that architecture and that ecosystem? What, what, what advice could you give to somebody who wanted to start playing in that field? Yeah, I think the really cool thing about RISC-V is, is it invites that and it allows for many different ways for, for folks to help. So I think the first thing I would say is, uh, are, are they interested in the hardware side or the software side? Because there's different ways to contribute um, to both. So on the hardware side, um, you can work with uh, RISC-V International, you can propose standards, you can create new extensions, things of like that, that will eventually make its way into all hardware, uh, right? But that's, you know, that's for like CPU architects and people are really in on that. If you're into uh, hardware design, there are open source implementations of RISC-V that you can play with and you can tinker with and you can really learn a lot and contribute to. So things like the Rocket Core, things like Palpino, like things like Swerve. These are open source RISC-V cores that you know are broadly used for research and, and other things. You can participate there. Um, you know, the X280, for example, that is a sci-fi core we develop, we build that. So the way to contribute to working with that would be on the software side. So on the software side, there's all these open source projects, we need open source tools, we need a lot more software. I mentioned RISC-V vectors earlier. This is really exciting. This is a completely new area. So we can talk about, can we port more, you know, inferencing engines? Can we port more scientific libraries? Things like OpenBLAST, you know, math functions, you know, FFT transforms. There's all these algorithms that can be ported and written and optimized for RISC-V vectors. So if you're on the software side, there's plenty of projects and opportunities to contribute you know, in open source code bases repository that will run on both these open cores and these commercial cores. So that would be a great way um, to contribute. And the nice thing about RISC-V is it takes advantage of all of this. So at the end of the day, when your product is deployed, people take what's the best software available, right? So if, if you have the best, you know, open blast library, people will probably use yours. So it's really kind of opens the door for many different ways to, to contribute. Jack, when w might we start seeing RISC-V come out in things like laptops and desktops? Uh, great question. So I, I think this is inevitable. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, certainly within the next decade, hopefully sooner, um, I think, you know, we, we've already seen some, you know, significant traction in, in embedded, plenty of embedded products are there. We look at the automotive sector, they're you know, starting to move to RISC-V uh, already. Um, I think I've, I've been quoted on some, some places predicting you know, that automotive is going to happen within five years. Um, so I think you know, laptops and mobile are just a few years uh, after that. 
Will Sci-Fi be working with any chip manufacturers that are creating maybe single board computers um, that might compete with something like the Raspberry Pi? Yeah, so one of the things that, that we do at Sci-5, especially in the early days when, you know, we're trying to tell the world what is RISC-5 and getting people comfortable with, with the idea was we put out our own development boards, right? So the High 5 Rev1, the High 5 Unmatched, the High 5 Un, you know, Unleashed. These are, you know, software development boards so people can see that it both exists in silicon and they can write software. Um, so our focus for that has been kind of make the software development as easy as, as possible. So there's a lot of peripherals and other things connected to these to these boards. So they tended to be, you know, uh, openly accessible, but they were more like $500 or $600 type boards for, you know, you know, big serious software development, right? So I know some of the hobbyists, um, you know, that's not exactly the price point uh, that they want. But I do think as RISC-V continues to grow and we have lots of customers who are taking our cores and building various microcontrollers and Wi-Fi type chips and other stuff. I think the ecosystem will naturally create, um, you know, kind of hobbyist level, lower cost dev boards that, that are available. I think there's, there's a couple even this year that have been announced, you know, like in a hundred dollar range from others that utilize the Sci-Fi cores, um, but it's not a Sci-Fi product, but they use the Sci-Fi cores and those are, those are great. Like all this helps the ecosystem. Um, but what what we do, the development boards that we do, you know, tend to be the bigger ones because we want to, you know, we, we need to enable you know, kind of large software deployment. People want to take it and, you know, rack it and make build farms and other things. So, you know, it's it's all the nice part of Risk Five is is we don't have to do everything and we can't do everything and, and we don't want to do everything. But the community as a whole makes everybody better. Um, so I, that's why, again, we'll see this, this grow uh, faster and faster. What are some of the biggest hurdles and or roadblocks for companies or people that are considering implementing or rolling something out on Risk Five? Yeah, I think it's really just um, change. Um, it's 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 a new thing, and and you know when people do something new, there's always a slight hesitance in the beginning, and they take a little bit, you know, baby steps, and but then they start seeing other people doing it, and then they get you know, more brave, uh, they get more courageous and they want to start doing it. And it, so as it turns from, you know, uh, do I really want to go to, I'm really afraid of missing out. That's the stage that we're in. People are starting to, to, to be afraid that they're missing out. So I think that the initial reluctance um, where we're at that tipping point where everybody's going to come on board and, you know, and the, the hardware and the other, you know, product capabilities also caught up. So I think you're going to see in the next, you know, 12, 12 months, a, a dramatic change. If you think things are happening fast now, like check back in next in a year. Can you tell me a little bit about what Sci Five might be doing in the upcoming automotive space? Yeah, so we actually just launched a, a whole new family of products uh, called Sci Five Automotive, um, which which is targeted for the automotive market. So the automotive market is a bit unique and different in that you know they they require what's called functional safety. So fault tolerance and, you know, basically to make sure that things don't crash, right? And cars don't crash, things like that. So there's a much higher safety bar uh, that's required. So there's certain things that you have to do in your, your IP and in your chips to kind of ensure that. So now we have a dedicated family of processors um, for that space. And one of the reasons why is like, you know, RISC-V, you know, I think I mentioned, you know, earlier that RISC-V can really go everywhere and we expect it to go everywhere. So the question, you know, listeners might be asking, why, why automotive? Why the focus there? Well, automotive is going through a transformation, right? Obviously, autonomous driving and, you know, that kind of gets a headline. But the fundamental architecture of how compute is done in the car is changing. So instead of lots of those small microcontrollers doing various things, we're getting into much more kind of, you know, central compute or zone type designs where they need much more computational capability in the car to do autonomous driving and driver assist and all these other things. So they need more compute. They're changing the architecture of the compute. And when that happens, they also have their own software. So when you have your own software, first party software, you become a candidate to change to risk five sooner. I think everybody changed risk five, but the folks who have their own software will change sooner because they go, okay, I had to build a new architecture. I need higher performance. I need all this stuff. I'm going to invest all this new software. What ecosystem do I want to be on? So then you have to ask yourself, do I want to be on, the open ecosystem with lots of choice of vendors and I can do it myself and everything else? Or do I want to be in the proprietary ecosystem where I have one vendor to choose from and if they don't want to do something that helps me, I'm really stuck. So of course you choose the open one. So that is that combined with all the changes is why, you know, RISC-V is, is seeing a lot of success 
in that market. So in a lot of ways, we're just listening to our customers who've been asking us for this. So yeah, we just introduced a complete family of products for that, and, and you'll see more products to come uh, in that family. Does RISC-V support real-time operating systems? And if so, is this maybe an application for something like that? Um, yes and yes. Um, so so RISC-V um, does, and there's some specific... Uh, well, I shouldn't say. So when I say RISC-V does, that's actually incorrect. sci 5 does. RISC-V as an ISA, you know, it doesn't preclude it. It doesn't support it. You, you can do that. If that becomes a, a implementation uh, of how you implement your core. So I should say that the Sci-5, we have uh, RISC-V cores that support uh, real-time features, deterministic uh, type computing, and some, you know, actually some new features that, that aren't in the market um, today in our cores. It's very well suited for automotive applications. It's very well suited for like some aerospace uh, applications. So, so yeah, the, the short answer is yes, but the, the key caveat there is like it's, it's not RISC-V that supports it. It's, it's the Sci-5 implementations that support it other implementations may or may not. Jack Kang, he is the Senior Vice President of Business Development, Customer Experience, and Corporate Marketing, and part of the founding team at Sci-5. And guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, sir. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Thank you for having me. Joining us in the mumble room is Naylor. Sir, you are on the air. Hey, guys. How we doing? Good. How are you? Pretty good. First of all, I want to thank you genuinely and sarcastically for all the talk about Home Assistant, because I am so far in that rabbit hole, it is not even funny. All right. Well, we got a minute. What can we answer for you? I want to know about home events. Uh, Steve actually pointed me in a direction earlier today, and I've got it sending me telegram messages. But like, let's say I want to know if a supposed to be opens opened. What is the best way to get that event to me? Is it through the Home Assistant app itself? Is there something else you know about, or am I just stuck with Telegram? Because let's face it, you know that that's uh, it's just a whole bunch of messages coming all the time, and you know, and I mute half the things. Steve, we got about so, fifty seconds. Your thoughts? Yeah. So real quick, if you expose your Home Assistant outside of your network, either through Nebacast or whatever. Um, I also use the Home Assistant app for push notifications. So if you don't like Telegram, you can absolutely use the Home Assistant app to get push notifications with the caveat you're only going to get those when your device is on the local LAN unless you are connected through Nebacasa or pushing it out into the internet. You could potentially have like a VPN too, couldn't you? <clears throat> you could, but then you'd have to have the phone on your VPN all the time so that you'd get those notifications. Yeah. Yeah, I've 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 seen that done with WireGuard now, where to where it'll just transparently transparently connect in the background, and then you can kind of keep that persistent connection going from your mobile device out uh, back to Home Assistant. But anyway, you might give that a shot. Let us know. Get back to us if it doesn't work. We'd love to know. Hey, music in our ears means we're at out of time a huge thank you for joining us if you joined us live it happens every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at asknoahshow.com. You can catch up with us. And follow the latest on Twitter. He's at Linux Ovens. I'm at Colonel Linux. The show at Ask Noah Show. We're back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. We'll answer your questions live. In the meantime, we invite you to send emails to live at asknoahshow.com. We'll take your feedback throughout the week. We'll see you here next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a great week.